first period, I can pinpoint the day I got my period because of what was on television. Nice. I, I remember it. I remember being really angry that I got my period during sweeps. That is the most Lauren thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I ever. was so upset. Also, the I idea that it would ruin bad. your week somehow. You know, like that idea, like we are just yes. brought up to truly, truly fear this moment happening. I was, I was not happy about it. And, uh, and I felt like, yeah, it was going to ruin my week of, of the finales. Dang. Dang. I know. So it's, it's embarrassing, but yet on brand story that I felt I had to share. And when we get to that episode of Murphy Brown, I'll tell it. We again. will talk about it. <laughs> hey guys, this is the week I got my period. Honestly, we should, we should acknowledge it. It should be acknowledged. We should, right? Ready graphics? Ready theme? Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. It's season three. Scream singing, aka Skrelting. He's oddly blinking. Jim arrives. <laughs> Sorry, cacti. Warning, warning goes my brain. Ooh, leather. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season three, episode one, the 390th broadcast. Hello. Hello. It's season three. We've made it. We've made it to the season I think a lot of us have been waiting for. Oh, a lot of us have been waiting for. <laughs> it's one of our favorite seasons. A couple things happened this season, just a couple. But we're, you know, we're not there yet. We're, we're bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. We're, we, like the gang, are getting back from vacation. Yes, the gang are back from vacation, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Oh, speaking of you saying that, quote-unquote, nothing of note happens. <laughs> I found this little clip it online. I don't know what it's from. I think it might be from TV Guide. But it's interesting because it's a quote from Diane about the beginning of season three. Obviously, they've just won the Emmy. They're riding high. It says, going into the third season, people expect you're going to make a radical change, says executive producer Diane English. We really aren't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there will be nothing that's groundbreaking for Murphy. Nothing. One issue the show will address, she says, is racism. The issue will be sprinkled in several shows. The controversial foul-mouthed journalist Jerry Gold will reappear. Murphy had a brief affair with him last season. English says viewers loved him and felt that Murphy had finally met her match. Her male match. And let's be honest, it's true. Now, technically, Diane, I guess, is right. But the end of the season, spoiler uh -huh. alert, as many people know, there's a bit of a shakeup. I would say a radical change. <laughs> radical change. Which, listen, at this point, they may not have thought about yet. So this episode aired September 17th, 1990. We are officially in the 1990-91 season. It was directed by Barnett Kelman. And a fun piece of trivia today is that in 2023, it is the 100th anniversary of Warner Brothers. And so you may Happy see a lot of documentaries. Birthday. Happy birthday, WB. And, uh, and we have some change to the writing staff. Uh, we've unfortunately uh, said goodbye to Russ Woody. And as we've mentioned, Norm Gunsenhauser and Tom Seeley. But we welcome Tom Palmer, who had actually worked on My Sister Sam with Corby and Diane, worked on the first season of Mad Men. Peter Tolan, who created Rescue Me and wrote very heavily on The Larry Sanders Show. And then Cy Duquesne and Denise Moss are now regular members of the staff. No longer freelance. No longer freelance. Also interesting, which I hadn't realized, was that the Murphy Brown soundtrack came out September 4th. This is airing September 17th. And if anyone is not familiar with the Murphy Brown soundtrack, it's pretty much just songs from the show and a couple of audio clips of Murphy singing and um, talking about Gladys Knight and the Pips. It's, it's very cute. I think the little clips of her talking in between the songs are great. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And don't forget, you can now follow along with Murphy Brown and watch the episodes on the Internet Archive. So before I even jump into the opening, we might as well talk about the music, the song at the top of this episode, because it is part of this opening. That's right, it that is. We, we open on the bullpen, specifically the closed elevator where we hear the dulcet tones of Candace Bergen scream singing, aka Skrelting, uh, <laughs> the song, I'm Gonna Make You Love Me. Lauren, take it away with the song. Yes, yeah, so I'm Gonna Make You Love Me was not originally sung by Candace Bergen, but was sung by The Temptations and The Supremes together. It was on an entire album of duets that they sang together. 
It peaked at number three in April of 1969 on the Motown label. It is produced by Frank Wilson and Nick Ashford. Interesting enough, we have talked about Ashford and Simpson on the show before. It is the fourth iteration of this song that was released between 1968 and 1969. Wow, they really like that song. Yeah, it was safe to say the most popular version of the song. And the name of that album, by the way, was Diana Ross and the Supremes Join the Temptations. Oh, interesting. I like yes. the, the placement of who was who was the home field advantage. <laughs> who was joining who? Yeah, a lot of conversation was probably had about how that was going to be worded. That's my guess. What I also really love about this opening is that it's it's such a season three opening. We we, we know this character. We love yes. this character. It's a little meta wink. I'm going to make you love me no matter what. Coming off an Emmy win. It. It feels very like we're the show going, hey, we're back. It really is. I mean, they literally Corky walks in being like, I'm back. Like everyone is making this like fresh faced post vacation. They're coming back from hiatus. They're big winners. There was a happy send off. And like everyone is just in this place of like returning from summer vacation, which I love because it immediately made me be like danger, (laughs) (laughs) including the talk, which this is jumping ahead a little bit, but they talk about how it's their 13th season. And I was like, that is so unlucky. And then I love that Miles actually comes in and says, who calls 13 unlucky? I was like, I do. And y'all are too happy. Uh It's so funny. I never even thought about that. And I've seen this episode a million times. It's one of my favorites of season three. And you're so right. I had not thought of that. It is. Yeah. Their 13th season is not so lucky. Nope. And I, that whole, you know, Thing about like do buildings have 13th floors and all that yeah. I, mean, I just immediately was like this is a bad sign it's such an american thing too right like that's not yeah. an issue in other countries which i always thought, think is interesting so candace is on the elevator screlting out look out boys i'm gonna get you it opens as she is finishing screaming i'm gonna make you love me woo everyone in the elevator is in pain the bullpen is applauding <laughs> yes i just have to sidebar i love this plaid suit that she's wearing I love her entire outfits this episode, which all are a similar motif going on. But yeah, I love this. This is also the outfit that she wears in the season three promo shots. Yep. Yeah, it's great. I love it. So based off the promo shots, is it as green tan as it looks in the footage now? Or is that a color fading situation? In the promo pictures, is it, does it have that green tint to it? I don't think it does. That's a really good question. Yeah, I think of it as like a green tan, but. Regardless, she enters the victorious woman. Did everybody miss her? They all say, yeah, sure. She doubts Bob very playfully at his desk and says to see her after work. This is, this is again, everyone, she is so perky <laughs> that it makes me yeah. nervous. <laughs> she and Frank see each other. They hug. They bond over their vacations and being ready to get back to work. Murphy said she had R&R. Frank went on an archaeological dig and found a Pez dispenser. If this baby could talk. And he asks Murphy, where was this R&R? And she said she went to heaven on earth, baseball camp, a week in Florida training with Dodger legends. Frank, of course, is thrilled to hear this. And she says, remember that trouble she had pitching low and inside? Not anymore. Though Steve Garvey won't be needing a vasectomy anymore. Jim arrives. He, again, playfully, not really, playfully scolds Frank that, that he left a cherry yogurt on his desk for four weeks. They happily shake hands. Nothing more is said. Murphy, they hug. And then Frank asks why he didn't get a postcard from Jim when he was in Nantucket. And Jim gets very rigid, as Jim does, and says, why? Because Nantucket was a living hell. Doris and I will never share our house with the Roonies again. I also have to point out Charlie Kimbrough's extension of the ooh vowel <laughs> with the Roonies again. Made me so happy. Apparently, Andy Rooney drove them out of their minds. And Charlie Kimbrough then does an Andy Rooney impression that I will not recreate here, but I will share what he said, which it's is, very good. Did, you ever, did you ever wonder why crabs walk sideways? Did you ever notice that you can never get sand out of your bathing suit? And why is it when you cut nose hair, it grows in even thicker? Doris got so upset, she tried to run him down with a dune buggy. Oh, Jim day. cannot tell them how glad he is that they're back. Every day, Doris is my hero. This is such an interesting thing, because I think this is a news person that I think today most people don't know. Yes. Yes. That this is what he did. He just was at the end of 60 Minutes Mm -hmm. complaining about stuff. (laughs) 
I have such a core memory of those segments with my mother. Me too. Yeah. I just, the second he said, I was like, oh my gosh, I know all of these questions. Also, I do want to say, I won't go into it here, but I did work in a waxing and laser hair removal spa for several years in New York. So I actually do know why you think that your hair grows in thicker. (laughs) I won't go into it here, but actually it doesn't. Your hair grows in stages. That's all I'll say. But there is a reason and it's a myth. Wow. That's not where I thought we were going to go. And and I've, I've learned something though. Anyway, moving on. So they talk about how it's their 13th season. Warning, warning, goes my brain. Their 390th broadcast. Murphy says she is ready for it. She thinks she can even face a new secretary. And I have to say, again, even with the opening of this episode where we know these characters, we're ready to go. This is such a testament to the gag of the secretary at this time. As she's walking to the desk, people are already starting to laugh. And this man Mm -hmm. is not a visual gag. He is a perfectly normal looking man. That's part of the joke. But the fact that she is walking over there confidently has the audience losing it. Unless Frank and Jim did something off screen that we didn't see that they're laughing at. I'm pretty sure it's the fact that there's a secretary. And we're on Secretary 37. Secretary 37 does not have a name. Oh, no, he does have a name. I refer to him by his special skill. But Murphy introduces herself so politely, says, you must be my new secretary. They shake hands. His name is Kevin Mallory. He says he's so thankful for the job. Having a good job during the day helps pay for his studies at night. If you have watched Murphy Brown, you know that that is the cue that something about those studies is going to be the problem. <laughs> and I forgot what the study was for a second. Me too. I, I, I was, was like, thrilled. oh, wait, wait. Oh, no. What, I don't remember what the studying is, but it's going to be bad. So Murphy, very pleasant. It's like, oh, he's studying. Whatever. It moves on. Says, why don't you start by going to the storeroom and getting some fresh number two pencils? He'll find out she goes through them pretty quickly. As he's starting to stand up, she goes, by the way, what are you studying? Murphy's being so nice. Mm-hmm. So nice. In response, he doesn't say a word. He just begins tapping. Excellent tapping, by the way. He taps all the way to the storeroom. What a prince. It is horrifying to watch her watch him. <laughs> he's incredible, though. He taps his way out. He's doing he's doing like shenays while tapping yeah, on his way past the good. elevator. As the elevator opens to reveal Miles. Who's ready for season 13? Who said that was an unlucky number? And I wrote in all caps, me. I did. <laughs> <laughs> he gathers the gang. He's ready to... Im- discuss important things. So they all start to sit down. He says, you know, I was talking to my girlfriend the other day, my my girlfriend, Audrey. And she said, my girlfriend said something very insightful to me. My girlfriend said, Miles, do you know how unfortunate you are to have the job you have? Also, the way he says that, that is so Grant Shaw knowing how Jane Leaves speaks. Because he's not doing the accent, but it's so suddenly I her kind about of that. cadence. Yeah. It's so subtle. But I was like, this is somebody who knows the person they're talking about. Yeah. And it says, my girlfriend made me see. And finally, by the, wait, let me count this. One, two, three, four, fifth girlfriend drop in wow. not that many sentences. Murphy finally erupts in all caps. We get it, Miles. We get it. Does everybody get it? And the entire bullpen just chants, Miles has a girlfriend and her name is Audrey. <laughs> to which Miles whips around and goes, is everybody finished? I also love, there's this tiny thing that Joe Regalbuto has where it almost looks like he's conducting the group. Oh, I didn't notice that. (laughs) It's, I don't know if that he's actually doing it or if his hand is just moving with him, but because he's in the foreground and facing everybody, it almost looks like he's cueing them (laughs) to do it. It's it's precious. We settle back down. Miles wants to know where Corky is. And Frank says, no one's heard from her since the wedding. Frank says, must've been a good honeymoon. If you know what I mean. And giggles, Jim, ever the gentleman yes says yes frank we all know what you mean may i suggest we practice a little restraint when she arrives after all corky was well innocent and sometimes well um deflowering can be a traumatic experience for young women (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i love him so much i have no i love the juxtaposition of this you know because that's the what jim is saying is kind of what in media Right. Yeah. Be, be, you know, a virgin on your wedding night was sort of, you know, depicted. And I I love what happens next. I love the fact that she's like, I like sex. Sex is great. It's phenomenal. <laughs> I, I love that it comes from the character we assume would be more conventional. Yeah. Yeah. But she's like, oh, sex is great. <laughs> we, I'm so I'm so happy for her. I'm so happy she got this. Now, at that moment, this is when Corky arrives. 
Hi, everybody. I'm back. She's in a lovely little outfit that I want to wear to work, which is a brown shirt, a skirt, this big earth tone scarf and like a giant bow with kind of a matching yes. scrunchie Her hair situation. looks fabulous. Hair is cur- like she looks like a woman who is like comfortable in her body. She looks like a woman you know? who's had many orgasms. She looks like a woman who has been must, <laughs> you know, and we love to see it. She apologizes to the bullpen for not writing thank you cards to everyone for, you know, their lovely presents and gifts, which, by the way, I have a personal vendetta against the assumption of thank you cards. As someone who got married in the last several years, I just think that there is something that defeats the purpose of saying thank you if everyone expects you to do it. (laughs) Very good point. And personally, I still have not finished all of the thank you notes from my bat mitzvah. So, yeah. She says she's sorry um, for not writing those, but uh, Will and she have been busy. In fact, they were so busy on their honeymoon, they hardly left the hotel room. Busy, busy, busy. Busy. This whole thing, Faith's delivery of busy, and then what she says to Murphy, it's just, I I love her in this episode. She's so good. She's so on point. I also, I took a screen cap of the moment that she says busy, busy, busy of Jim, Miles, and Frank. (laughs) Miles looks like he is just dead inside. Frank is delighted. And Jim is holding his fish mug and is just starting to, like, he just looks disgusted and concerned. And it is fantastic. I will send it to you. We will post it. It's incredible. (laughs) Oh, my God. She says, they were busy morning, noon, and night. Sometimes they were busy three times in one morning. Then she turns to Murphy and in classic quirky, oh, Murphy, I hope you get busy soon. I hope, get, I hope you get busy real soon. And real it's just, soon. Oh, it's just so like, and it's, and she does it in this different way where she kind of like takes it in like, I feel so bad that you're missing out on this great thing. But also like, I'm being delicate about it at the same time. It's got so many levels to it. It's one of my favorite quirky moments. I also just imagine that there was a moment once they really figured out what they were doing and she realized what what busy could really provide for a person. I feel like while she was on her honeymoon, she had a thought and it explained Murphy to her. Like she was like, oh, this is why Murphy is X, Y, Z. She just needs this. Like, she just needs very, to get laid more. She just needs to get laid. Oh, poor <laughs> Murphy. She just needs this wonderful experience. Like, I just feel like she, from her genuine place, was like, that's why she's so caustic. And then oh. the look on Candace's face also after she says it to her is like... She's like, oh, of course you're not. You don't have this. Yeah. Or just like, excuse me. Who's going to get knocked up? It's going to be me. Anyway, so... <laughs> Spoiler. Miles gathers them back to attention. He wants to open with saying and is interrupted by the tapping secretary making his way back across into Murphy's office, doing some great shoulder work as well, I must say. And Miles gathers himself back together and says, maybe it's time to breathe new life into FYI. Maybe make some changes. Jim stands and counters that FYI has been very successful, but Miles counters, research shows that they're not adding new viewers. And if this trend continues, their audience in 2000 will be a guy named Mort, which, well, when I realized that how far of a predictor that was, <laughs> we are farther away from 2000 than they were when this joke was made. Yeah, I know. that. that- That's fun. Mm-hmm. And he says he's not suggesting like wholesale changes. They have carefully selected a dozen impartial viewers where they're going to screen a show for them and hear their suggestions. Murphy stands up and says, just call it what it is, a focus group. And Frank shares the trauma that the last time they had one, Frank had to wear a toupee. He felt like he was telling the news with a dead beaver on his head. And I love that we finally got an explanation for why Frank wore a toupee in those first seasons. No, I love that. That's great. I was like, thank you. Thank you for referencing. <laughs> And Miles shuts them all down, says, listen to you people. You're afraid to get some honest feedback from the American public. Looks like he'll be attending it himself. It's this afternoon, three, 10th floor testing facility, if anyone decides that they want to join him. Murphy laughs and says, as if any of them have the slightest interest in what a focus group has to say. We cut to... The focus group. Miles is in a room with wonderful leather chairs behind two-way glass and a woman in glasses is explaining to him all about how the focus group works. They're going to be on one side. They're going to say what they think. No one's going to be able to see that they're behind here. And she does this great crazy laugh. I absolutely love. <laughs> I love, I love so much. It's, it's such a small role, but this is one of my favorite like small little guest stars because she like brings her own little like spin to it, which I think is great. Yep. 
And then all of a sudden, the gang shows up. Who would have thunk? I love as they come in and, and Miles literally like, well, 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 them. look who's here, Gladys Knight and her pips. And Murphy assures that they aren't there for the focus group. You know, she just wanted to show everyone the chairs. And and I, I this cast is so good at the little sort of like they mutter to themselves mm-hmm. kind of a thing where like everyone sort of adds something, you know, which a lot of times is actually scripted, but sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. And I I love that, that Frank's like, ooh, leather. <laughs> and Jim <laughs> says, oh, my mother told me about these. Like, <laughs> it's so, so good. And then all of a sudden you hear behind the two-way glass, let's begin our discussion as the FYI theme song ends and everyone runs into their seat. And then Miles chuckles to himself. So we then proceed to watch this crazy focus group of everyday people. (laughs) First of all, they're asked, what do they think of Jim? Would Jim be someone they would invite into their home every Wednesday night? This very obviously blue-collar Man says that Jim doesn't seem the type that you would invite to a spur of the moment tractor pull. <laughs> I love the spur of the moment addition to that. That that's what makes it sort of a golden little joke, like spur of Honestly, the moment tractor pull. Having grown up in rural America, oh please, yeah. yes, oh yeah, yeah, no, that's that would definitely happen. <laughs> What I also love is that every time something terrible is sort of said, we kind of go back into the room with the gang. <laughs> and as they're talking about Jim, everyone sort of swivels towards him. And then particularly something I notice is that you see that, that Charles Kimbrough is very, his posture is perfect. Oh, Not that yeah. it isn't always, but like it's so like erect and perfect for the next joke, which is that someone feels that Jim looks like he forgot to take the hanger out of his jacket. Miles assures Jim that it's all constructive criticism, Jim man, he calls him. And Jim agrees, he walks around, which I love, and he, he walks up to the glass, and he's very professional about it. Oh, of course, it's very, it can be very helpful. And then he taps on the glass and says, I can see you, tubby. So Jim is not taking it very well. <laughs> no, like Jim, you know, is is known for doing, he... he he talks a talk that he can't walk sometimes. Yes. And and these are on, this is on camera talent. Everyone has yeah. a bit of narcissist in them, even if it's not as bad as Murphy. I love seeing all of their versions of narcissism. Oh, it's great. It's great. And then one of my favorite bits, they ask about Frank Fontana. What do they think? How would they rate oh. the other male anchor? And someone says, was there another guy? Oh, Frank. It's the worst thing that could happen to Frank. It's his worst nightmare, which he says, but like it's like the perfect thing for his character. And then Murphy kind of like gives him a side eye. I appreciate in this that like Murphy isn't actually very mean in this. You can tell that like she does feel bad for him, right? Like Mm -hmm. she knows how funny this is, which she does. She ends up laughing. But when she apologizes, it's so genuine, right? She's like, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Like, but it's really funny, but she knows how much it's hurting him. And I really appreciate that sort of like balance. Oh, and then someone goes, oh yeah, I remember Frank Fontana. I thought it was a commercial for the hair club for men, which is when Murphy laughs. I also like that the person who says that is a balding man. Oh, that's right. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. Frank compares himself to a high pitched whistle only dogs can hear. (laughs) Corky can't take it. She has to close her eyes when they talk about her. And of course, everybody loves Corky. When they're done, she asks what happened. And Murphy says that they hated her. (laughs) And Murphy is, is very big about it doesn't matter what they think. And they all begin to walk out. But then they ask about Murphy and she goes, wait, they're talking about me again. Biggest narcissist in the room. And one woman says, which at the time I remember watching this was so funny, and now it feels like little legitimately like anyone online, which is this one woman says, Mr. Yoriega may have done some bad things, but the way she was yelling at him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, it's Twitter. These people are Twitter. Yeah, I wish that wasn't still such a a real criticism that is lobbed so often. Yeah. So then we have a woman who is uh, dressed in the focus group with a lot of patterns and and a bracelet that I think I had when I was three. Just saying. Uh, lots, lots of rainbow colors and hearts that she didn't like the way Murphy dressed. And then, of course, Murphy just barrels into the room yelling, I'm really going to take fashion advice from you. Are those your regular clothes or did you come straight from clown college? And of course, everyone is freaked out. The room is chaos. Murphy is brought back into the room. She slumps in her chair with the FYIers all around her. And Miles is livid that that was totally uncalled for. And Murphy just sort of huffs. And he Miles gives them a, a, a lecture that 
Not all of it could be helpful, but there were very few positive comments and that's very telling. And so he's going to bring in an image consultant to get them to be more enticing to a broader audience and, quote, take them into the 90s. So he's bringing in an image consultant and Murphy says that she hates that. They all come from L.A. Nothing good ever comes from L.A. And then she gets a devilish look on her face and goes, except a pool boy named Eric at the Bel Hair Hotel. So, Jesse, so I believe that you've brought to us today a segment on focus groups, which I think is interesting because I don't know about you, but I've been in a focus group, but I've I've never been on the other side of a focus group. Welcome to focus group history. I've been in several focus groups. Some of my favorites were actually for movies, but I've also been in for products and that kind of stuff. So it is generally accepted that the first instance of what would be go on to be called the focus group occurred during World War II. Ooh, interesting. The original research was focused on media messaging, specifically war propaganda. The government wanted to convince the public to go to war and to counteract Nazi propaganda. Oh. So it's two people are are kind of given the the credit for creating this model that would become the focus group, which is Paul Lazarsfeld, who was a director of the Bureau of Applied Social Research at Columbia University, and Robert Merton, a sociologist. They came up with the idea of focused interviews. They were asked in the study to use focused interviews to uncover the social and psychological effects of mass communications. So small groups were given broadcasts and they were asked to indicate that if they liked them or disliked them at various intervals. Uh, Participants were then interviewed as to why they liked or disliked something. The subsequent interviews helped to uncover that radio broadcasts were making Americans less likely to join the war due to their bloody and brutal portrayal of the Nazis and the battles. So they started adjusting American propaganda to counteract that so people would be willing to go to war. At the end of World War II, shockingly, led to a rise in consumerism. (laughs) And focus groups were more effective, people discovered, than surveys because there's a discrepancy between what people do and what people say they do. We see this a lot with politics. There's an article, Mm -hmm. I I think I've brought it up before, um, from 538 about the idea that people do not vote as moderately as they say in survey that they do Um, because when asked they actually they they couch it so that they don't seem extreme they found that more variety of folks would do a focus group than would answer a survey and they would also get more in the moment actual reactions rather than curated ones or and one of the things this made me think about was the difference between i've seen this a lot in customer service the difference in the way people express their opinions when they are in front of the person they're talking to versus when they're on the phone and don't have to face them versus when mm-hmm. they're on email or text and don't have to do any of those things good point yeah. so the honest responses they were getting out of focused interviews led to more accurate results and an impact on products so ernest dichter an american psychologist and marketing expert developed a form of consumer research in the later 40s called motivational research which utilized psychoanalytic concepts to uncover customer desires and the symbolic meanings of products because he believed people bought items not just for the purpose but also for the values and symbolic meanings the items embodied and so if you look at like virtue signaling of products right now like we put these messages behind products because we people buy based on how they feel about it not just what it is people will buy Mm. a lesser quality product if they think the messaging and the morality of that product is stronger oh well that fits into this episode Mm -hmm. right Uh, one of the things that i just brought up was you know you look at like when pepsi used kylie jenner to try and promote like standing down of conflicts and how that actually ended up backfiring so eventually the use of of both qualitative and quantitative research from these both the original focused interviews and this motivational research turned into the focus groups that we know and they became the preferred method of qualitative research in the 1970s which led to their abundance in the 80s and that's that's why i was thinking the 80s because i know when i was looking up information on image consultants Mm -hmm. they were saying that sort of started in the 80s as well because this idea of like how you dress and how you present yourself really became part of like mainstream culture Mm -hmm. in corporate america Mm -hmm. and then obviously then sort of gravitated towards you know entertainment and politics as well um so i just want to give you a couple notable focus groups so one of my favorite ones is in the 1950s the women buy cars too Chrysler Plymouth was struggling with the sales of its convertible until focus groups indicated that it was wives, not husbands, choosing more sensible sedans over youthful, exciting cars. They adapted their advertising to target women instead, increasing sales and giving the manufacturer a more family-friendly reputation. 
Ultimately, it led to the realization that women buy cars as much, if not more than men, leading to a massive change in how cars are designed, branded, and sold. Oh, wow. In the 50s. Another one that was massive was a focus group that identified the psychological effects of AIDS on the gay community. And research on homosexuality had little input from the gay community up until the mid-1980s due to homophobia. Due to their history, gay respondents mistrusted psychologists. So researchers needed to create a safe, comfortable environment where members of that community felt that they could express their opinions. Mm -hmm. Uh, It gained insight. It led to them being able to make more definitive connections within the the spread of the disease, but also the effect on the community as a whole. And it just led to humanizing this community in a way that had never been done before because they'd never been put into a room where they were safe and with others like themselves. Another one is the the focus group that basically saved Domino's, Domino's Pizza. So the pizza industry was in a downward spiral in 2009, but a focus group was researching the fact that Corporate responsibility has a wider impact than we think. Companies typically Mm -hmm. never admit that they're wrong and instead rev up the PR engines. But Domino's Mm -hmm. research found that admission is interesting. It's humanizing. When a company admits it's wrong, it begins to seem human. And this lays the foundation for a new relationship. So based on the research, Domino's created a campaign around the simple notion that instead of running from criticism, we listened to it, responded, and created a better pizza. Their sales rose 14.3% over the previous year, the largest quarterly same-store sales increase in fast food history. Another one is that Obama used focus groups to because he was up against all the odds. He's black. He has two years' experience. He's facing Hillary Clinton, all that kind of stuff. Focus groups were introduced to Obama through these processes, and short film clips of him speaking were shown. The results were that the power of his voice made any ad stronger by creating a deeper connection to him. So they started using his audio more and more and more in ads, because that's what people oh, responded to. Interesting. I'm fascinated by the future of focus groups, which is the use of social media surveys, using yeah, the yeah. like button, voting for things. It's something that's become so popular in social media. So I think we're going to have less and less in-person focus groups and more using of social media as a massive focus group where people can be honest because they can just click a button. Mm-hmm. So it's a the less that we're bringing people into a, into a room, which was the original goal of focused interviews, which was to get their, their immediate and very human responses. We're now putting them into a dry survey position again because everyone feels like they're authentic on on the internet when we're going back towards surveys that was so fascinating i'm so glad that you brought that so anyway i could talk about it all day i find it so fascinating but we should probably cut to what's happening in the episode shall we so the gang is in the bullpen they are gathered standing and yeah murphy is in an outfit it is it is one that stands out to me on her as it it looks like a costume this is one where it looks like a costume to me it's it's very big. I feel like it's indicative of stuff she'll wear sort of later in the series, maybe. But mm-hmm. like, I like it for her, but not in real life. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, did Murphy dress up to to trick the image consultant? Oh, so I was like, wow. she, but I was like, but wait, everyone else isn't. So this must be the outfit that they were planning for her to wear. I love the elements of it. I think that jacket is incredible, but I, it doesn't make sense to me. And I don't know if it's just that we needed one element to be looser or something. I'm not sure, but it is an outfit. so they're all standing around and murphy has out our beloved prank book she says i've been looking through my my list of revenge techniques she holds it up says volume two best of the 80s and thinks that maybe the glue and the comb thing might be the best bet and they all agree jim says he loves glue and the comb and i love that it's a loose leaf notebook which little with literal handwriting in it. the elevator opens and the consultant arrives in the process of criticizing miles outfit it is harry shearer should I explain to everyone who Harry Shearer is? Oh, if they don't, they should know. Probably know his voice. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know him from This Is Spinal Tap. But the reason I say voice is because probably what will be in his obituary, what, sorry, Harry, will be the fact that he is many, many voices on The Simpsons. From mm-hmm. the beginning, including Mr. Burns, Smithers, Principal Skinner, Ned Flanders. And he is also in This Is Spinal Tap, 1984, with Michael McKeon, who... I had sort of forgotten about this. He and Michael McKeon and David Lander started out in the 70s, well, late 60s um, to mid-70s, in an improv radio comedy group called The Credibility Gap. Mm -hmm. I think they also did sketches as well. And I had known that because David Lander, who people may not realize with Michael McKeon, were Lenny and Squiggy 
on Laverne and Shirley, and they did those characters with the credibility gap, and that's where they were found. And then those characters of Lenny and Squiggy were sort of put onto this sitcom. So they had already created these characters beforehand. But also what I find interesting about Harry that people may not realize is that he was a child actor. Mm -hmm. And he was on radio a lot when he was a kid. When he was four years old, he was on, for example, Jack Benny a lot. And a, another actor who did a lot of radio at that time and was also on Jack Benny was Mel Blanc, which if people don't know is the voice of Bugs Bunny, Barney Rubble, and pretty much like every famous Looney Tunes character. So here you have someone who he felt kind of brought him under his wing, not knowing that like years later, he would be pretty much sort of the Mel Blanc of his time, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's so lovely. And also was interesting that when he was approached to do The Simpsons, at first he didn't want to do it because he was under the impression that that kind of voiceover work or cartoon work would be done alone. And he had no interest in doing something alone. He loved ensemble. Mm -hmm. And they promised him that they would all work together. So he's really had an amazing career. But I, I think that lately, you know, more people would probably know him from The Simpsons and his voice. He was also on SNL for mm -hmm. a number of years back and forth. He he was there with Lauren Michaels was there and then he was invited back more to be on camera when Dick Ebersol was there, did a lot of stuff with Martin Short. He's he's a wonderful comic actor and it's great to see his face. He's incredible. I as of this recording, he is credited with 747 episodes of The Simpsons, which Whew. is bananas. And my family are uh true devotees of the Christopher Guest cinematic universe. Mm. So that is what I grew up knowing Harry Shearer from. My family loves This Is Final Tap, Mighty Wind. I mean, everything. All Christopher Guest movies. But he, yeah. his presence is always so notable when he's in one of them. He's yeah. so unique. He has such, he, shocking, shocking to hear, has such a command of his voice. But uh, he's, I love seeing him. He's such a, he's such a goober in this episode. His vibe has this mix of like, like hipster know-it-all meets youth pastor meets Ooh. like, your dad talking to his his kids being like come on sport it's fascinating his choices That's and his great cho his choice of physical proximity with other actors is hilarious to me when he gets a little too close in familiarity with some of these characters especially with jim when he's just like right up in there with jim it makes me so happy speaking of let's talk about it yeah uh, so he's telling miles that you got to have your own personal style the blue blazer the gray suit they're gone he says i mean unless you don't mind people coming up and asking you for an extra pillow and help with a tray table <laughs> poor miles just looks like what this is my grown-up <laughs> outfit this makes me look like a grown-up yeah. he introduces himself as chris bishop image consultant and my favorite joke of this entire episode is yeah? in response frank so weakly just goes maybe you've heard of me <laughs> it is that it's like no one else says really hello good. it's just like chris bishop image consultant maybe you've heard of me and he just like oh, wilts okay. off to the corner it is so it is the perfect joke it is it could be so overlooked but it's done so beautifully you had to have been paying attention earlier and then watching jo joe regabuto his physical choices in this scene in particular he is a destroyed wilted man yeah <laughs> i love him so much Chris says he knows how they're feeling. Change is scary, and he's the change guy. But he doesn't want them to think of him as their enemy. Think of him as the guy who's come to save your show. <laughs> so condescending. <laughs> he does this, like, tiny light bulb moment. Think of him as the guy who's come to save your show. <laughs> like, that is so insulting. Uh, Murphy turns to him and says, can I borrow your comb? To which Miles says, Murphy, do not. So Chris says he's cutting to the chase. He's viewed hundreds of hours of FYI. He turns to, he says, Jim. And Jim goes, yes, what? He says, you don't blink, Jim. Do you know that about yourself? As Charlie just stares. I also think it's very funny because after he says, we got to loosen you up, get some eyelid action, get you out of that suit and tie thing. What I love is like Charlie Kimbrough's go-to physical choice when Jim is flustered is to blink a lot. <laughs> So his response is just like rapidly blink and look flustered. <laughs> he says, Frank, Frank's already seated. His head is in his hand already. Like he's already yeah. a defeated, wilted man. And Chris has a rolled up piece of paper in his hand and kneels down and taps Frank on the like literally like, hey, sport, how you do it? Like just like yeah. taps him on the knee. And 
He says, we can solve this visi visibility problem if we just turn up that volume. Frank's an investigative reporter. He does dangerous things. We need to exploit that. So he's come up with a new segment called Let Frank Do It, where people write in and ask Frank things like, what's it like to jump off a bridge with a bungee cord? And, and then Frank does it. Actually, let's save that one. Let's do that one on Tuesday. He tells Frank to wear tight shoes and don't eat anything for breakfast. Yeah. And he whips around to Corky. And Corky, my self-aware queen, says, I know I'm not perfect. I don't have a journalism background, but I am learning and I know I can do better. Oh. Like my, the growth of this woman. And he says, what are you talking about? We're not going to change a single thing about you. Except maybe hike that skirt up a bit. Oh, what the hell? Just lift it over your head. Corky's face is feminine disgust. And I love it. This feels so relevant even today, yep. unfortunately. And I, I love this because it's so obvious what they're poking fun at, right? Yep. They're not, we're, we're not laughing with them. We're laughing at them because it's sadly very true. Yep. And it's still true. It's such a quick moment, but it's one of the first times I've seen Corky have like legit grounded feminine rage where like she understands the joke that's being made at her expense in a way that I think a lot of times we've seen Corky as the person who's like, oh, that's just like boys pick on you because they like you. Like that kind of person who's like yeah. aware that it's teasing and maybe it's a little gross, but it's fine. They like they're just flattering. This is one of the first times I've seen Corky legitimately disgusted and insulted by that treatment. And she's uncomfortable. Yeah. Through and she's not playing episode. along. Yeah. She's really uncomfortable and, and, and seems almost sometimes afraid to say anything. Like exactly. she tries to say something and then they're like, no, no, no. It looks great. She's so uncomfortable. Well, because we know that in this type of scenario, Corky is a, pr a like primary victim of this type of treatment. And it's one yeah. of the first times where we've seen her be actually vulnerable in it and not, yeah. you know, just unknowingly complicit in her survival of this world. You know, it's, yeah. it, I, I loved seeing her look that uncomfortable and angry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he turns, he says, so that leaves us with you, Murphy. Murphy says, no, it doesn't. And he says, you definitely have your own style, but have a serious warmth problem. And he said, maybe it's because of those hard-hitting interviews. He wants to see her go one-on-one -on -one with the average American citizen. Take the pulse of the heartland. What do you think? She says, I love it, Chris. I really do. And I'd like to meet with you about it tonight. At the docks. I always love the way she goes, at the docks. And he says, okay, it's fine. He can't force anything. But take a look around. All of the networks are developing itchy trigger fingers. The second the ratings waver, the axe falls. This is where I want to jump in and say, Chris, do they have a gun or do they have an axe? <laughs> <laughs> you metaphor, my man. Which I actually, this is not a, a judgment of the writers. I think it's actually brilliant. I feel like this is the man yeah. who makes his metaphors constantly and thinks he's a genius. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, this is totally on purpose. I love it so much. Miles asks Chris, maybe, maybe they can just have time to absorb it all. And Chris says, absolutely fine. They'll take Miles shopping. And as they walk out, Miles goes, yeah, maybe maybe I should go with like a double vent in the jacket. And then he mutters as they walk away. I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> now, something something that that Chris brings up, which I think is really interesting and actually is referencing to things we've talked about before that was happening around this time. Mm -hmm. he, he makes a list of news people or news oriented people who got the axe because of image issues, right? Mm -hmm. Kathleen Sullivan is out, he says, someone that we spoke about who was in the finale last season, right? That she started having gray hair and then there were all these rumors about her. And so she got the ax for being old. And then he, he lists John Palmer. And I didn't know who John Palmer was, so I Googled him. So what was really interesting was that we've talked about Deborah Norville before and that Deborah Norville had been brought on as sort of, you know, a replacement for Jane Pauley because she was young and perky and maybe didn't have as much experience per se. And so she replaced John Palmer, who was sort of the person before all of the breaks, you know, who would do the news sections. And I didn't realize that. So this really fits in so well into what the episode is about, right? That this sort of older gentleman who had been doing the news on the Today Show since like the early 80s was pretty much let go from NBC in 89 to sort of bring in this successor to Jane Pauley, who was also older. So the story of John Palmer and Deborah Norville is exactly what this episode is about, is about this sort of image, this idea that what the audience needs is sort of young and bright and, and being talked down to. And I thought that was really interesting. 
you know, that it's even just the mention of these people. And I don't know if at the time, obviously, people would be more aware of that, but it was something that I just didn't remember being, you know, young, and it, I thought it was an interesting thing to bring up. So now we're on set, and the first thing we see is Miles's chair and this very sort of bright FYI symbol on the TV. It looks a lot like FYI for kids. Hmm. Yeah. The design of it feels more like midday talk show for moms. And then Miles enters, and I felt like he looked like he was out of the player or like some like parody of oh. like 80s, 90s, like Hollywood, like, hey, how you doing? He's got glasses, his hair is kind of spiked up, expensive suit, coat with the collar turned up. He's got a scarf. The the acreage of the shoulders. The and to be specific, the hair isn't spiked as much as it is it is solid and tall. Yes, I was trying to find a better way to explain it. You're right. Spiked is really not what it is. It's just sort of that sort of 80s like It's a it's like a tall helmet. It's a lot of product. Yeah, there's every product is in that hair. And everyone is sort of shocked, but what's great is that Murphy literally laughs in his face. Yep. And all of the sort of, you know, self-esteem that he has, you know, being pumped up just sort of drains out of him. He's not very happy with being laughed at. Murphy, again, has a sort of very similar thing that she wore in the first scene, right, where it's like sort of this wrap skirt thing and a lovely blouse. I really like this for her. Okay, I was going to say, this is jumping ahead to mine, but it's interesting that Murphy's outfit isn't a departure. Yes, like you're I right. know that it Chris isn't. says, like, you obviously have your own style, but like, if they want her to be warmer, I'm shocked they didn't dress her like Mrs. Hooley to come. I mean, if you, I hadn't thought about this until you brought this up, but just off the cuff, maybe because mm -hmm. it's less severe, she's not wearing, like, a jacket, right? She's not wearing a suit. She's a little more casual, maybe? Yeah, yeah, and I wonder if it's because I'm used to seeing Murphy casual off set, and so I'm not thinking just about what she wears on camera, but I swear we've seen her wear things that are not just blazers. I'm trying to you know? think. I feel like on the show, not so much. She's in blazer. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating because I'm like, her outfit is very Murphy. Yeah, but I think it's very <laughs> Murphy in the office. So so the set looks very, eventually they call it Santa Fe. I was like, New, New Mexico white girl mm -hmm. appropriation, which we've talked about American before. Southwest. Southwest, yes. We've <laughs> talked about this before. It was very big in the 80s or, um, and even early 90s a bit. I found a bunch of articles that were like, the Santa Fe look was very big in the 80s. Miles is very upset. He says, this is not a nurturing environment. Some of us are trying to change and grow. <laughs> and Murphy says that some of us are trying to hold on to one last shred of dignity. She feels the set looks like Robert Redford's living room. I feel like of the time. Then, of course, Chris shows up. You know, he he very, I feel like, doesn't believe this, but he's just saying it, that he thinks that, like, this is just what is very, this crap is just very in with women, you know, 18 to 34. I really think that he believes that it's a great set and he's just saying that to make them feel better, even though it's probably yeah. true. And that he needs Murphy to radiate friendliness and caring. And here comes one of my favorite lines from the whole series, which encapsulates Murphy, is that she says when she interviewed Ollie North, he said the experience was like sticking his face in a buzzsaw. I cherish those words, Chris. I even had that embroidered on a pillow because that's just the kind of gal I am. <laughs> and then Miles says that Murphy will promise to be less like a power tool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love a power tool. As much as Miles is being like really positive with Murphy, when he talks to Chris privately, he does have major reservations. And I really like that because it shows that like even Miles doesn't really agree with this. He's just trying to, go, you know, change and go with the flow. Yeah. He wants the show to be successful. And Chris, of course, uses Miles' new confidence, you know, against him by saying, you know, well, when women look at you now, what do you think they're thinking? Because, of course, he helped him, you know, with this whole outfit. Mm -hmm. And Miles says... That he thinks that women are thinking, who is this small god? <laughs> it's my favorite line of his. And then uh, the rest of our gang comes out. Jim is dressed in sort of um, Professor Chic with this sort of big sweater. I don't know if it has sort of, you know, patches, but it should. Big sort of It should collar. have like G, I call them like G-Paw sweaters where it's like the elbow patch yeah, yeah. and the like leather buttons. And he but it's a very like almost Mr. Rogers. Yes, yes. And he's... He's got the Charles Kimbrough curly hair that we never see yeah. Jim do. And he goes, good Lord, there's no desk. Corky comes out in a very short skirt and she looks so uncomfortable. She's like, 
trying to walk. I'm just afraid she's going to show something. She's so uncomfortable. Oh. Frank is dressed in leather like he's a, a biker and then also one yeah. of the village people. Also like a T-bird from Greece. Yes. It's like someone just <laughs> had no clue and threw a whole bunch of stuff together like, this is Black cool. leather. Mm -hmm. Dangerous. Something I also never noticed before, considering I've seen this so many times, but the, the mugs... I love, I was going to say, I love these mugs. The mugs, not only <laughs> is the handle cacti, is that the, <laughs> what I would say? It's like, it's like the arm of a saguaro cactus coming out. Yeah. And they look like penises. Yes. I love, <laughs> I'm obsessed with these mugs. They are, I, if someone knows where I can find this mug, I need to own it. It's insane. <laughs> uh, I should also mention that not only is Corky uncomfortable with her skirt, but like, Frank is like pulling at the crotch of his pants. Like obviously he's yep. also very uncomfortable. Probably some some chafing going on is my guess. Mm -hmm. And the beaver is back. <laughs> the beaver. So we're talking about Frank's hair. <laughs> Just to clarify if people maybe were listening on the treadmill and maybe didn't hear that thing from before. He called it a beaver. <laughs> Anyway, they're all, they're just, again, this is such a great ensemble episode. I feel like this is a great episode to like show someone who maybe doesn't know the show at all yet and kind of like introduce them to it. What's also great is that the first time that Jim sees Miles as he goes, who are you? Oh my God. <laughs> so good. So the show starts and we play this opening, which is like Murphy with a dog, which I'm pretty sure is one of her real dogs at the time. Yeah. I recognize it, I think it is. from the cover of McCall magazines. I think this is Jerry. Mm -hmm. I just remember one of her dogs was named Jerry for obvious reasons. Yeah. Jim is yeah. in a car with a cell phone, which, by the way, was a big deal to have a, like, a phone in yeah. your car. It means he's a modern man. He's not some old relic. Corky is sitting in the bullpen on her legs in the most uncomfortable way possible just to show her legs. She is doing the like the side saddle like kneel yeah. on an office chair and the legs, the knees are and the bottom of the skirt are pointed toward camera. Like it is implying that if she shifted, you could see up her short skirt. It's very gross. Frank is bungee jumping as Chris. <laughs> Already said that he would he would do. He does not look like he's having fun. So we start the show and Jim does not know what to do with his legs. He's oddly blinking. Is so funny. And then Frank introduces his let Frank do it, which sounds it's just him doing crazy stunts like he's on Fear Factor. And this is also the first time that Corky is introduced as Corky Sherwood Forest for the first time. Yeah. I also I just need to drop in my favorite thing that they do to Frank is they say that, you know, try to mention him. As, as often as possible so that the audience gets familiar with yeah. Frank. And so they start saying Frank's name like Miles was saying girlfriend at the beginning yes. of the episode. Yeah. Frank, Frank, Like so Frank, 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 Frank what do you Frank, think, Frank? Frank? Frank, so we're gonna set up, it is just like, oh, poor guy. So also very funny is Corky's segment for today's show is that she was a day in the life of an air traffic controller and that she's so sorry and thank you for the quick action when she <laughs> dropped a box of raisinets on the radar screen. I love her little, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then Jim says, that. as if they're having a conversation, you know, Murphy has interviewed some of the most powerful people in the world. And then they all do fake banter and drink from their horrible penis mugs. And <laughs> <laughs> sorry, cacti. And it's just, it's so funny. The segment is such a, I don't know why it isn't highlighted more as showing how incredible these actors are as physical comedians. Yeah. Everything each one of them does to the tiniest level just shows how wrong this is. Oh, yeah. It's so brilliant. They're, it's just they all go, oh, yeah, that's so true, as they, like, drink out of their mugs all at the same time. And then... And Jim's blinking. Jim is blinking <laughs> a lot. And then he tries to introduce Murphy's segment, which he obviously hates, this idea that they decided to just interview a regular person out of the phone book, because that's how we do this now. He's just so unhappy. <laughs> and so Murphy is going to talk to Mrs. Betty Hooley from Greenfield, Idaho. What a name. Jesse, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it to you. <laughs> Jesse. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Betty Hooley, what a name. Mm. And what a, what a visual. What a, like, this woman sings in the church choir. Yes. She loves pale pastels. She's in this, like, pink lavender pastel blouse and skirt her hair i mean she 
I wouldn't be surprised if she was like had like a Gibson girl hairdo, like just big and up and round yeah. and soft but contained. She's very f- sort of the way that she's presented together feels very Phyllis Schlafly to me. Phyllis Schlafly would love her. Oh, they would. Would they would love, love each her. other? Love, love, love each they other. Would love each other. And this is like this is why I'm like this is what people thought a warm woman looked like. So I just like oh if they had given Murphy like this hairdo for the segment I would have laughed so hard. So Murphy is there. She's in her lovely, her lovely outfit that we both want. I want that dress actually. She says, so Mrs. Hooley, uh, the challenges facing an American family in the 1990s must be enormous. And she asks her, how do you make ends meet? She's a picture of Americana feminine attributes. Mm. And she says, you know, it isn't easy to make ends meet. They both work so they can pay bills and send their children to good schools. And you could see Murphy kind of go, oh, okay, a working mother. She says, so so you sacrificed because you put a high priority on education. Like this seems like you could tell Murphy's like, oh, an opportunity. Betty says, well, they didn't plan on sending their children to an expensive private school, but they really had no choice once the Italians took over. The Italians. Murphy freezes and goes, excuse me? And Betty says, the Italians. There are a lot of them in the neighborhood. They look like regular families, but you know they're up to no good. She doesn't want her children around them, so they had no choice. We cut to a shot of the monitor with Chris and Miles and some of the crew behind it. And you just see Murphy looking toward them, looking horrified in the monitor. And Chris just reminding her silently to smile. Wish that they would have turned to a shot of Frank. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Being like, oh my God. What? <laughs> yeah, I'm actually slightly sad we don't get shots of the of the gang during this. Yeah, yeah. It's all, my, it's all, it's it. all Miles mean, and Chris. Yeah. yeah. So Murphy plasts a frozen smile and turns back to Betty and says, let's talk about the American dream. Do you own your own home? And Betty says, yes, when they got married, that was one of their goals. And last year, they finally were able to buy their dream house. And Murphy says, great. So good old American work ethic paid off. And Betty says, it did until the black people moved in next door. It's all over now. And then she just starts talking. And she says, you know, it's it's like what happened when the Chinese man bought the dry cleaners from the Jewish people. Miles is, they, we cut back to the monitor and Miles is just shaking his head while we hear Betty complaining that all of a sudden there's no free delivery anymore. We cut back to Betty and Betty says they're cheaper than the Jewish people and they don't even stuff the sleeves with paper. At least the Jews stuffed paper. Ugh. She says, although they did overcharge her for a silk blouse, it's their way. It's their way. And she has this like conspiratorial smile. <laughs> just like, we cut back to the monitor and what i love is harry Shearer as chris is doing this like pushing motion as if to just like push it down and keep going going we know what's about to happen but what i love is what miles does miles head is down he is not watching and he's gesturing as if to cue what happens like he just knows it's like in three two one and then murphy starts speaking yes she says mrs hooley has anyone ever accused you of being a bigot who, me? She goes, who, who, me? <laughs> she says, no, the <laughs> other Mrs. Who. Yes, you. And I'm going to read you Murphy's little speech that happens. She says, in case you haven't heard, there are entire black families in this country who go through their entire lives as fine, upstanding citizens. And some of them aren't even good dancers. And I'll bet there are at least one or two Italians who have never put a horse's head in a bed. Where is your mind, Mrs. Hooley? Have you ever read a newspaper? Would you even recognize one if you saw one? I'm sure you're dying to answer these questions and maybe even tell us why Hitler was misunderstood. But I don't want to keep you from your Ku Klux Klan meeting. Back to you, Jim. The way that she builds and builds oh. this and builds this until her head is literally shaking. This mm-hmm. is why Candace Bergen has so many Emmys. Like, I, it's so good. Just and this season has a lot of these monologues like this. And I, I yep. don't want it to sound like oh, she just does the same thing. They're all different monologues. But yeah. it's just like the, that. Murphy and we've talked about this before, right? Like Murphy mm-hmm. says what we wish sometimes that we'd want to say, right? I mean, I think in this situation uh-huh. we would say it. But you know what I mean? Like she becomes this sort of mouthpiece of just like standing up for like the little person, so to speak, for people who are doing wrong things and says what we want to say with the passion that we want her to say it. And I just, it's great. She's kind of that perfect example of what Meg Ryan's character talks about in You've Got Mail about in the moment that you're faced with someone horrible, you say the exact thing you would have wanted to say in that moment and how that is a skill that 
most normal people don't have. Yeah. And this of being able to respond to somebody with the, the right words at the right time with the passion you want to say. Murphy is that for us vicariously many times where because she has incredible writing behind her, we get to see these moments that we don't see in real life that you want to see in real life, which is someone just coming at this woman and then just mic dropping with a back to you, Jim. And this scene, which I was mentioning off, off mic to Jesse, is the scene that I see on Twitter the most, that people like find on YouTube and they're like, oh, have you seen this? Like, I would say that if most people don't know Murphy Brown who are like actively online, they would go, oh, I know this scene. Oh, okay. It fascinates me that this is the scene. I'm not surprised that it's popular. Yeah. But, you know, like I think about, you know, every six months or so, the the clip from uh, the West Wing where Bartlett shoots down the conservative uh, radio host who pretends to be a doctor yeah. and tells everyone that they're going to hell. That clip circulates constantly. It's one of my favorites, but it also just circulates constantly as people rediscover it. It fascinates me that this is the scene from Murphy Brown that does that. Well, I think it's a combination of a couple things. I think it's because of the content, obviously, right? But it's also because it's mm -hmm. just what's available. It's also available. I mean, maybe other than the availability is just that people want to say this to people online maybe like yeah, yeah i think that's part of it i think it's the one that's resonating with current cultural yeah, conversations absolutely. and being able to say like look this was being said in the early 90s yeah and still so after she has this we cut back to the monitor stand the crew behind it is thrilled chris is horrified and miles is miles yes. <laughs> we cut to the bullpen off the elevator comes our FYI team, looking as if they're all about to laugh. <laughs> Particularly Joe. I would be very curious how many times they tried to do this scene because it sounds, uh -huh. it looks like they could barely get through it. <laughs> but it's okay because we love the show. They walk up to the FYI meeting table, which has uh, newspapers. Murphy puts a garbage pail on the top. And then Frank takes his toupee off. Murphy smiles. They put it. In the garbage pail, Jim hands quirky matches. The matches are then handed to Frank, who then sets his hair on fire, to pay, I mean, <laughs> in the garbage pail, and the whole bullpen cheers with excitement. <laughs> it's a wonderful scene, even though they obviously are laughing. And then Miles comes off the elevator, dressed as, well, Murphy <laughs> describes him as Otto the Gay Woodsman. <laughs> It feels, again, cultural appropriation with tiny legs. But he's yes. wearing a Native American blanket as a coat sweater thing. Sure. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So Chris says that Murphy was the whole problem last night. And Murphy says something which is, I think, very important, is that people like him come in, make all these changes, and then leave, and then they are left to deal with the consequences. And that she would like to run him out on a rail. To which Frank goes, no, let Frank do it. And then the whole <laughs> bullpen cheers. He says, don't come crying to him when American Home Accidents is beating them. Obviously a reference to America's home video. Mm -hmm. And that their show is a dying breed, news and information and cold hard facts. Which is, uh, feels very of today, actually. I feel like his yep. prediction does come true, which we've talked about a lot, that this feels like a crossroads in media and entertainment to where we are today. So then Chris leaves on what you assume would be sort of his high horse, only he has a comb glued to the back of his head. <laughs> and we are to assume that Murphy did it. did it. Miles has an envelope. They got 600 calls. And he hasn't opened it yet. And they're worried that maybe the calls were that people loved it, but it could be that people hated it and they don't know. I would say that most people call when they hate something or they write letters when they uh -huh. hate something, but who knows, right? So yep. Murphy decides that they need to go with their instincts. And, and wait, I, so I, I have a, th oh, go ahead. My curiosity is I, I agree. I think most people call when they hate something. My question is, did they hate the format or did they hate what Murphy did to Mrs. Hula? Oh, good point. That's my question. Which part did they hate? That's right. Well, I, I think the same way and I'm not a racist. Exactly. Oh, anyway. That's a really good I, point. That, that's my thought experiment is like, what were they mad about? Oh, I love that. That is so great. I mean, the thing that we're getting at is that they don't open it. You know, yep. um, we'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know. Miles, Miles says that he 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 realizes 
so to speak, how wrong they are and how can he not sitting uh, wearing Trigger's blanket. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure anyone really knows who Trigger was, but he was the horse for the Long Ranger. It was a great joke for the day. It was a I'll great joke for the day, but I don't know if anyone <laughs> will get it out. So he says that we they need to go with their instincts, you know, that they, they, they can't talk down to people or else they train them to accept very little. And he votes for real nose and he rips up the envelope. Yay! Yay! And that, what are they standing around for? They need to get ready for their 391st show to produce. That's right. Huzzah! Everyone sort of spreads out. Miles goes to throw out the envelope in the garbage that is sitting on the table and notices that Frank's <laughs> toupee <laughs> is burnt in the trash can. He goes, oh, Frank, you burnt your hair again. How many times do I have to tell you this? These things cost money. And then he, like, <laughs> runs after uh, Frank. And I love that, like, Joe, like, sort of, like, you know, puts his hand all over his hair, like, ooh, you know, like, kind of like a little brother. <laughs> and that's the end of an excellent episode and an excellent season opener. Yeah, that's an incredible se- first episode for a season. It's, oh, they just. It's so good. It, it requires so much trust of the audience to just follow Mm -hmm. there's no kind of re-explaining of what happened we're going to assume that you're with us and you're following it it's really they have really smart multi-part jokes that pay off later in it's it's a great episode the the cast is like at their snappiest at their best physical choice it's just great no i this is one of my favorite episodes and it's hard to say it's my favorite episode of the season because there's so many other great ones but it's just yeah there's so much Jerry Gold to come. <laughs> there is a lot of Jerry Gold. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Obviously, you know, we can't do this without you. If you love the show, leave us a review. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon. We have a Buy Us a Coffee. You can be, you know, a monthly member and get special unedited episodes, special things that we record, and we so appreciate it. But we also appreciate you in any capacity that you come and join us on this lovely trip. Yeah, financially you can't support us. Consider telling someone you think might be interested or, or share it on a, on a story on a, on a social media. If you were at Murphy Brown Pod everywhere on social media, you can also email us mm-hmm. at murphybrownpod at gmail.com. If you have some thoughts, we always love to hear people's thoughts. Send us your focus group. <laughs> so, tell us, okay, here's I'm requesting. Yeah. Tell us if you have been in a focus group. Oh. Tell us an anecdote. I would love to hear focus group anecdotes. Yeah. And perhaps if we get enough, we will share them with each other on a, a Patreon. Oh, that's a great idea. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. And we'll see you next time for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Mm-hmm.